there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people about their work and their journeys. And today my guest is Curtis Chin. He's a writer. He has a memoir out called Everything I Learned. I learned in a Chinese restaurant. It's about his upbringing in Detroit and the family restaurant Chong's his family life, the people that would come and go, what it was like to work there and be there all the time. And I listened to it uh, on audio and he does a great job with the audio. And I just, by the end of it, it has this really beautiful power. It's a story of a family and a marriage, a coming of age story about a guy discovering that he's gay, discovering he wants to be a writer. It just was one of those things that kind of flows along, very easygoing, and then it just packs a real emotional punch because you've fallen in love with all of these people. So I was very excited to talk to Curtis. And before we get into the interview, I also want to thank my listener, Matt Z, who was the first person to tell me about this book. He sent me a photo of him and Curtis at another event. And because of that, I kind of tracked it down and we made it happen. So thank you, Matt. I, I'm so glad that I got to read the book and have this conversation. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by Ivory Soap. No, it's not. I don't have any I don't have sponsors. It's just me. I do it because I love it. And if you want to support it, there are two ways you can do that. You can go to DennisAnyone.net and you can put a little money in my virtual tip jar. Help me cover my expenses. Keep things going. I always appreciate that. Or you can consider becoming a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the Derek and Romaine banner. And for a monthly subscription fee, you get my show early and you get all these other great LGBT shows. And uh, you can learn about that at DNRStudios.com. I also want to give you an update on Enzo, my dog. Some of you have asked about him. Yeah, he's had a journey, but he's doing really well. He had surgery because we had to basically, (laughs) I I can laugh a little bit about it now, but basically while um, I was at my dream board party, what I talked about in a previous episode, kicking off the year, my dog was home eating his own tail because he had been uh, poisoned, I think, a couple days earlier after the exterminators came, even though we followed all the protocols. So... They had to have this, he had this big thing removed from his stomach, this big clump of hair and poop bag remnants. And like, I think he was just trying to self-soothe and all that stuff. But he's recovering great. He seems like his own self. Um, It's expensive, really expensive. So if you ever thought about, hey, I'm going to leave him a virtual tip, um, that might be a fun time to do that. But um, I appreciate it anything and all the well wishes and uh he's gonna be okay so that's the important thing all right enough of the plugs and stuff here now is my interview with curtis chin joining me now from downtown los angeles it's curtis chin his book is everything i learned i learned in a chinese restaurant i devoured it uh over the past few weeks uh, like a delicious meal and i'm so excited to talk to you so welcome to the podcast thank you dennis very excited to be here uh, I've been looking at your Instagram. You're crushing it with this book tour. You're going lots of places and seeing lots of people. Yeah, I'm a bit crazy. Um, I How's did about, it going? Great. Um, I did about 50 events um, before the book came out, including five in Europe. And then um, when it came out October 17th, um, I did another, I think about 70 events between October and December. And this spring, I am probably going to do between 80 and 100 events. That is incredible to me. Are you booking a lot of them yourself? Do you have a team? Like when I went on book tour, you're lucky if sometimes there would be nobody show up at your bookstore and stuff like that. Um, But this is like, it's the era's tour basically of authors. You're the Taylor Swift uh, of a generation. So how is it coming? How are you doing that? How is it all coming together? I am very lucky that I have a very supportive community uh, who has just been really 
great about coming out. Um, I've been averaging about 50 or 60 people at each venue. Books have been selling, um, you know, and I get the, I think it's just, um, you know, for many years of um, building relationships with people uh, and it's really starting to pay off. So yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. Well, you founded an organization quite a long time ago. Uh, and I, I bet some of those people come through that world. Is that right? What's the organization called? Uh, so uh, right after college, I moved to New York and I co-founded a group called the Asian American Writers Workshop, which is uh, still around. And it's a really great literary organization, literary arts organization. I mean, um, name an Asian American writer and they have some connection to that group. I mean, it's just incredible. But I think it's also maybe some of the social justice work I've done through my films, some of the volunteer work I've done in terms of voter mobilization, but also even just my alumni association. The University of Michigan has been really, really great. It's like everywhere, every city I go, they like send an email blast out to the alumni group. And I usually get, you know, you know, about 10 to 12 people just from from Michigan. I mean, so that's great, too. It's it's really cool to look at your Instagram and see all those people holding up the book cover and smiling. And uh, I, I imagine it's thrilling, especially because you started this organization a long time ago, and this is your first book. It must feel like, wow, this is this is what I've been working for for a long time. Is it must feel very gratifying. You know, um, so we started it when I was uh, right after college, when I was twenty two. You know, and I'm fifty five now, so it's yeah, it's been thirty years since um, you know, we we co founded that organization. But you know what? Uh, I, I don't. I wasn't really driving to like have my own book. I mean, I was happy supporting other writers, you know. And I went off and did my own stuff. I mean, I, I went and uh, pursued TV and film writing for a number of years here in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I got a big break uh, when in the Disney Fellowship, right you know, on, ABC yeah, Disney Fellowship, yeah. So, uh, and then you know, I've been doing documentaries for a good number of years. Um, but so it seemed like the timing just seemed right for this book and. Uh, just everything just seemed to lined up, yeah. and, and and like I said, I everything is all icing on the cake at this point. Yeah, so. it's pretty amazing. I, I remember reading in your acknowledgments something about you were talking about the workshop, and you're like, mm. "We did it, we made it, we find." You know, there was that moment of yeah, like here we are. How do you describe the book to someone that knows nothing about it? If you just met someone on the street and they were like, "What's that?" So the memoirs called everything I learned. I learned in a Chinese restaurant, and it's about growing up. Asian American and gay in Detroit in the 80s. Uh, it was a very tough time period for my hometown. Uh, the auto industry was really struggling. We had crack cocaine. Uh, we had AIDS. I knew five people murdered by the time I was 18 years old. But despite that, we had this really wonderful Chinese restaurant that my parents raised me and my five siblings in. Uh, and so the book is really not just my own memoir, but it's really a thank you to my parents for all the hard work um, and guidance they offered us, but also a hat tip to my hometown of Detroit, because I feel like a lot of people have misunderstanding of the city uh, and stereotypes about it. And so I wanted to sort of show, hey, you know, it's still a wonderful city and a great place to, to uh, raise a family. Your parents come across so vividly in the book. They're so moving to me and they're so different from each other. Mm. Uh, you talk about when you were developing your own cooking style that your mother was very follow the recipe. Your dad is trust your gut, trust your heart. It's like this mixture of two opposite kinds of personalities that come together in you and in the way you approach a lot of your life. And I find them both so moving in different ways. Mm. Um, I, I take it your father is no longer with us. Is that right? I think I read that. Yeah. Um, sadly, there was a car accident uh, one morning back in Detroit. 
as they were picking up vegetables and going into work. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear uh, that. Yeah, my dad sadly didn't make it. Uh, My mom was severely injured. uh, And I actually had to leave the show that I was working on at that time and go back home and uh, sell the family business. This really wonderful restaurant that my great-grandfather founded in 1940 in Detroit. And um, it was really hard. Yeah. And your and your mother has she she's I take it she's read the book and what does she think of all of this? No, she has not read the book. She's not Nobody, read the book. Yeah, I don't think any of my siblings have read the book. I don't think anybody in my family's read the book because uh, except for her sister-in-law. But um, you know, uh, as my sister said, uh, she has no interest in reading about my sexual awakening. So <laughs> <laughs> that might be the title of this episode. I always like to pull a quote. But in the acknowledgments, I think you you thank her for sharing all the stories and helping you remember things oh, and like yeah yeah it sounds like, it sounds like they were on board with it they just haven't read it um, yeah. yeah yeah my mom is very supportive and uh, I've been doing these readings right and I've gone to the Bay Area a couple times now and she's out there supporting you know she's telling her friends about it and same thing with my siblings you know they're out there too they're telling their friends and so I think they're supportive on that level. But having to relive the moments, I don't think they feel like they need to do it. I mean, yeah. they were there. And and they know that they probably have a different um, take on it than I do. Yeah. When I came out to my mother, my father had already passed away. It was because I had a book coming out. And I was like, the jig is up. I got to do this. And so I wrote a letter. And I don't know that she ever read the book. I don't know. And it wasn't super gay. I mean, the, the characters were gay and whatever. It, but it, it wasn't, you know, the joy of gay sex or anything like that. But um, I don't know that she read it. I don't know. Is your mom still around? She is not. She is no longer oh, okay. here. But uh, but uh, I know that she was you know proud of of what I did and and that felt good. And but I don't know I that think, she ever read it. Yeah, I think that's something that I had to learn in the writing process, right? And in terms of even just the support, is that uh, as writers, right, we write these books and we want all the people in our lives to fall in love with it and to support support you in it. But maybe the ways that we want them to support us is not the ways that they feel comfortable supporting us. Yeah. Right. And sometimes and I've discovered they're not that interested. They're not. <laughs> they just don't read. They don't, they're they're not that interested. Talk. I'm like, sometimes I feel like I've done some kind of cool, kind of high profile, sort of glamour adjacent things. Yeah. Not that interested. Not really that interested. Yeah. And that's, and you go, you're like, okay, all right, I get it. It's okay. Or even feedback, like, like specific feedback. You'll be like, oh, what did you think of this? Yeah. And like, yeah, you know, and yeah. you have to accept that and you have to be able to separate that from their true yeah. feeling about you, right? Yeah. My favorite thing that I ever did in my mother's eyes is I used to dance on cruise ships and we did a 40s review called In the Mood and I gave her the rehearsal tape. So it's not even me. It's just like studio singers. Like, And she played, she wore it out. And I think it's my favorite thing I've ever been involved with, even though I've done things that, you know, might be considered more, you know, high profile or, or, or more accomplishments. But you can't top that is in that the mood that, tape. You can't top is it. Is that the thing she responded to, though? Is that this... Stuff that she liked. Yeah, the most. that was her thing. It was her era. It was her music, and she loved it. And it, it, you know, you just have to, um, yeah. You just sometimes you get, just have to accept, you know, the way they react and 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 take the support where you can get it, and it's fine. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The restaurant itself is like this haven. It's like a magical place. And I watched the feature that you did on CBS Saturday Morning, I guess, where you go there and you see the building, and it's. You know, it's closed down, obviously, and it's just, it's a magical place. And it struck me in the book that you never got sick of it. You never were like, I cannot, I got to get out of here. Did you, did you ever, it felt like you always, 
it, it, the, the affection for the place never seemed to waver, even when you were away from it or even when you were working really hard. No, I loved that restaurant. I loved everything about it. I loved the fact that my family was there. I loved that there was so much free food there that I could just eat. Like anytime I was bored, I could just stick my head into a refrigerator, you know, yeah. and try something. Uh, and then in the dining room, we always had, you know, interesting people that would come in, whether it was the mayor to some Oscar winning actor to literally the pimps and prostitutes on, on the street corner. You just never knew who was going to walk through that front door. Um, I think it also helped um, that my parents paid us yeah. versus some other kids, some immigrant kids. They, their parents don't pay them. But no, so I was making money at a young age. And that felt really kind of cool, too. It's like, oh, you know, all the money that I just put in the, the cigar box underneath my bed. You know, it was, was kind of nice to see that growing, too. So, yeah, no, I really loved it. Um, but I also loved it because I love my hometown. And this the restaurant itself was so tied into the history of the city too, that I felt like, um, uh, it just, you know, just have these really even wonderful memories. Now, um, I should also say that, uh, CBS did a wonderful report. Uh, but I also filmed a piece, uh, later with NBC news where we actually got to go inside the building. Ooh, NBC was like, I'll see your outside visit and yeah. we're going to give, we're getting inside. Ooh, we're I gotta find that. I gotta find that. Yeah. yeah. Were, there, were there fixtures in there? Were there booths? What, what was it like inside? Completely gutted. Oh. I'm mean, in 20 years. Uh, uh, the Some of the bases for the um, walks are still there, like in the kitchen. But no, that's been cleared out. And it's interesting because um, the place seems much smaller. Uh, but just to show you how iconic that restaurant was, is so we, we moved out of that place 20 years ago, 20 odd years ago. And it's sat empty this whole time. Wow. But Detroit's going through this gentrification um, thing right now. And uh, it's finally reached the Chinatown area. And the building sold earlier this past year, uh, last year. And when that new owner bought the building, they went through the trouble of tracking me down in Los Angeles, asking me if I would reopen that business. And I was like, they wanted to be chungs again. They wanted to be chungs again. Wow. And five, like for five seconds, like, yeah, I could do this. I could go back to Detroit and reopen this restaurant. But then I'm like, wait, I'm on a book tour. I can't do this. Yeah, I have a life. Oh. It could, it's a reality yeah. show. Mix the worlds. It could be like the bear, but like a real life thing. And you've got your backstory. I don't know. 13 yeah. episodes on Netflix. I'm in. No, I would love that. But um, I think sadly, well, uh, a few months later, because I was hoping that maybe like if I couldn't do it, they would maybe bring me on as a consultant. Like I'd go in and tell them about the menu, the yeah. decor and all that kind of stuff. But um, a few months later, I, I went back, um, you know, when I went to film uh, the NBC piece, they told me that they have a prospective person to move in there. And I was a little sad by that because I thought like, oh, that's our corner. That's where we grew up. That's where Chung should be. Yeah. But then, you know, I thought afterwards like, okay, well, if it can't be our family, then hopefully whatever family moves in here and takes over has this, has wonderful memories and, and such a uh, beautiful experience as we did. Um, and then a few days after that, I thought like, okay, be successful f for a few years and then, you know, fail after five, and then I can move in. Then you can take it over, right? They get all the toilets working. They get everything up and running, but they don't have yeah. the right food. It just doesn't work out. Boom, you're they in. They do all the capital stuff. Yes, Everybody, they do all the hard stuff. Everybody's like, oh, this isn't Chung's. This just yeah. isn't Chung's. And there's a clamoring for me to come back. And they can ride in, you know, on, on a golden horse. I love whatever. it. Save the day. Um, yeah, yeah. I loved how your father was with the customers, how he was so 
friendly and warm and listened. And you learned about a lot about life and people from watching him and being like him. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the title of the book is called Everything I Learned. I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. And a lot of people will ask me, well, what did you learn in a Chinese restaurant? What was the first lesson or the most important lesson? And I always like to say that the first lesson that I learned was primarily from my dad, my mom too, but primarily from my dad. And it was this idea that when you're a young kid, oftentimes your parents say, don't talk to strangers. My right. Strangers are, are people to be afraid of. Everybody's out to get up. you. Don't get a car. Don't trust. Like, move. Yep. Yeah. And it was the my opposite. Dad, they gave me the exact opposite because my mom didn't have a chance to graduate high school. My dad went to community college for a couple semesters before he had to quit and come and work at the restaurant. So they didn't necessarily know what were the opportunities for us outside the four walls of that Chinese restaurant. But they knew that we have a whole dining room of people that did you know, people with interesting careers and things like that. And so anytime my dad met somebody who thought, you know, could help us or whatever, he'd call all six of us kids to run over there and barrage these customers with questions of like, what do you do for a living? How did you get your job? How much money do you make? And so this idea that of being able to talk to people who are different from you, not being afraid to ask questions and not being afraid of asking for help. These are things that my parents really, my dad in particular, really taught us. And it's something that's really carried me through my life because I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do, which is basically traveling around the globe, you know, screening my films and giving book talks now. If I didn't have that ability to be able to just meet people where they're at, you know, that's something that dad taught me. Well, it also struck me that Chung's sounded like the kind of place where everyone went because it wasn't like a it wasn't like a fancy dining fine dining for rich people, but but probably well off people went there because they loved the food. But, but you also had sex workers, and then you had the mayor would come in, uh, Mayor mm. Young, who had a dish named after him. Like it felt yeah. like everyone went there, and everyone was sort of the same in a way. It was. I mean, uh, we really. I mean, Chinese restaurants are like that in general, right? Like you can go in and see anybody from a different race, class, socioeconomic background, religion. Um, and that was that was the beauty of that place. Uh, and that's something else that my parents taught me was really just to judge people for who they are, their actions. Right. Because that's that's you know, you couldn't judge someone just for artificial things. You have to see how they come in and, and you interact with them. And so, yeah, no, it was really a wonderful childhood where you really get to know people and um, you learn about society, I think, too. Yeah. And Yul Brenner, not that nice. Not, not that, that nice. nice. Not that nice. Yes. Could have no, been nicer. Yeah. Could have been no. nicer. Refused to take I mean, a picture. Nope. Nope. Wouldn't even do that. Wouldn't even do that. Uh, my dad. So Yul Brenner, star of The King and I, wanted to uh, rent our, our, our dining room for a night for a giant cast party because his touring show from Broadway was in town. And my dad is all super excited because he felt like Chinese food didn't get the respect that other cuisines got. And he was really excited that this big Hollywood A-list person was going to choose us. And he did everything. He bent over backwards to, like, you know, make this the best night. So, actually, if you think of, um, like, if I wanted to write something, I think of that as, like, uh, an, a Chinese-American version of the movie Big Night. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah with yeah. Stanley Tucci. And that's all writing on this one big moment. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it would be that. Uh, my dad is so excited that Yul Brenner is coming in, and it just doesn't go the way he, he planned it. And so... Uh, that was another life lesson about people. People as people. Yeah. You know, people you put on pedestals, yeah. you know. And, so and you I, sort of made a decision that day that I'm not going to be like that. Like it, it sort, of, sort of stuck with you as like, 
this is how not to be if you're ever in that well, kind of a position. Yeah, or or just because everybody's like fawning over somebody doesn't mean I have to fawn over them. Yeah. Because you know what? If you see a different side to them, you don't have to do that. Just because a person's won an Oscar and a Tony, you know what I mean? And has an entourage of people coming in and bodyguards. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If they're a jerk, they're a jerk, you yeah. know? I yeah. mean, yeah. So, so I learned how to like be a little bit more critical or, or, or sticking to my own opinions about people like based off of what I see. Right. You know, trusting you know. your own instincts uh, on people. Exactly. Um, you start to realize that you're gay and mm. you're a middle child. And there's something about the way your grandmother treats your father that that sort of resonates with this idea of like, I cannot do anything to jeopardize my parents' love. Can you talk about that a little bit? I thought that was very poignant and you could see the cause and effect between the generations. Yeah. Um, so my parents are really great. They never said anything anti-gay, ne- nothing homophobic. I mean, we're families Buddhist. Um, we don't think in those terms that some other people do. Um, and so uh, my fear of coming out really had to do with disappointing them because I saw how much they were sacrificing for us, how much they had given up of their own lives, how um, definitely in the case of my mom, how stuck she felt being in that restaurant, not being happy. And I felt like, uh, you know, the worst thing I could do in life was to disappoint them. Particularly, again, my mom, who uh, she really put all the value of her own life in terms of how her kids turned out. It, it felt like if her kids were success, then that would prove that her life had meaning. Right. And you really uh, honed that into us at a very young age. And that's why I really I've just I did everything I could to make her happy. Right. And and the grandmother wasn't supportive of her, right? Like, was it no. her mother? It was it was your father's mother. My father's mother. It was yeah. like Cinderella. It really yeah. was. This was terrible. My parents. Uh, my my grandmother has sent my dad to Hong Kong. My dad was born in America, but my grandma had had sent him to Hong Kong to go meet a girl that she had picked out for him. Right. But when my dad got to Hong Kong, uh, he discovered that that girlfriend, uh, that that prospective wife had a boyfriend and so he had to scramble and find someone else because he didn't want to come back to america empty-handed and so he asked a matchmaker there to set him up and that's how he got set up with my mom and because my grandmother did not have a say my grandmother's very controlling she didn't have a say in who my dad picked for a wife and she never let it go she she held on to it and it affected everybody and everything. I thought that was really interesting. Um, international Mail Catalog. I was like, oh, I remember this moment. Some things, some things are happening in Arizona and Detroit. So you're starting to realize, oh, wait, I like guys. And you come upon an International Mail Catalog. Where do you, I can't remember. Where did it come from? Where did you find it? It was at the pet store. Where, where, where all the greatest, um, yeah, spank bank material is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I really wanted to do uh, in terms of writing this memoir was that um, I really wanted to posit my family in a time and place of Detroit in the 80s. Because I feel like sometimes um, when you read um, Asian American literature or, or maybe some you know, other communities, you don't always have a sense of how it connects to the larger picture yeah. of what's going on in America. And I really felt like that was something I wanted to do so that you know, even if you're not Asian and you pick up this book and you read it, you know exactly where you are 
when you're reading this? Where were you at that time? So right. you can make that connection of like, okay, oh, I was going through that at the same time too, or not. Right. And that was important to me. Yeah. So you, <laughs> I love that the time that you were able to be alone with the International Mail Catalog, you, you were in a walk-in freezer. <laughs> you know, there are very few places to hide in the Chinese restaurant <laughs> where you get your own thing. So the walk-in freezer was one of the few. <laughs> Which is such a funny image to me. But it worked. It, it, it did. It, it worked out. You made it work. It, it happened. Well, it's, very hot. it's very hard to get hot and bothered yeah. in a walk-in freezer. Exactly. There's only so much you can do, right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know what? You do the best you can with the choices that you're given. Yeah. So the and walk-in then, And then you start to feel bad about it and you put the international mail in lost and found. Uh, I have things like that from my adolescence where I felt so guilty about like masturbating and lust and things like that, that I would like, I'm going to throw that away. I'm throwing it away. And then yeah, you're like, yeah. two days later, you're like, oh, I want that back. <laughs> yeah, I, I had that. Metaphor. I love the metaphor of it being in a lost and found. Yeah. You know, in some ways I was lost and found by seeing it, but then yeah. without it, I'm lost again, you know. Your book so. is also a real sort of, Valentine to Detroit, but it's honest about it. It paints a real picture of it. And my roommate is from Detroit and I was talking to her about different, you know, yeah, different like neighborhoods and things like that. And, um, you said at the top of this interview and in the book that you knew five people that had been murdered. I I don't think I know anyone. And I, I'm almost 60 years old. Like, I don't think I know anyone that's been, you know, if I have to think about it, then clearly it's not front of mind, but there was one in particular that you go into more detail about Vincent. Um, and that's an amazing story. It's a main moment in time, and I could I could see it sort of rocking your world and and the world of, of people around you. Did you know the story before? I don't think up? I did. Not top of mind. Like I might have heard the name, but I didn't know the, 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 how the the cops were basically. You know, they basically got away with it, and uh, they they murdered him, um, and basically got away with it. And there were protests, and it was very much. A lot of like a lot of the things that we see more recently in the news, but um, and you actually had a teacher uh, accidentally call you Vincent around that time, and just like it must have just been this earth shattering thing in your world when that happened. Yeah, it's it's why I became a writer because um, you know growing up in that Chinese restaurant, uh, I thought I'd be a waiter for the rest of my life because I loved it there. It was great, but. After this incident, I knew I had to to think about other opportunities in life because um, – so to set this up for your listeners, yeah. uh, the 80s, uh, Detroit was suffering. The car industries were having a lot of problems. They were laying off people, and people wanted to scapegoat the Japanese. And so there was a lot of anti-Asian rhetoric going on. Vincent Chin, no, no relation but a family friend, close family friend, um, was out at a, a strip light, a strip club celebrating his upcoming wedding the following week. Uh, these two white auto workers come in and they're overheard saying, it's because of you motherfuckers that were out of work. I don't know if you need to bleep, bleep that. No, um, we, we're good with it. Okay, good. Uh, we love so, motherfuckers on this show. I love mother- okay. okay, well, these are big motherfuckers. Uh, so they were kicked out of the uh, bar and they get in their car and they drive around the city of Detroit until they find Vincent. Uh, sitting outside of McDonald's, they take a baseball bat and they bash his head in. And so because our families were friends, because my uncle was his best man, we knew that very next morning when he was in the hospital struggling for his life. So if you're a young kid who's like 14 years old and you know someone that's in the hospital and has been beaten like that, you're going to check the newspapers to find out what happened. I checked the papers, nothing. 
I watch the TV, nothing. I listen to the radio, nothing. Nothing for that whole day. Nothing the next day, nothing the next day after that or the day after that. They took the media 12 whole days before they reported on this story. In that time period, he, the family decided to pull the plug. Obviously, the wedding was canceled. Meanwhile, everybody was coming down to our restaurant in Chinatown because we were the most popular restaurant because probably because we had the gambling den underneath our basement. Oh, I didn't know about that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of mafia stories that didn't make it into this book. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, it's a sequel. Uh, No, it's actually a book called Leftovers. It's all the books that stories that didn't make it in. I love it. But anyway. Oh, that's perfect. That's a great title. Yeah. Yeah, So people are coming in asking us for um, like details about this. Meanwhile, there's like this whole silence in the mainstream media. And so it really, um, you know, taught me the importance of it because several months later, the judge uh, only fined these guys $3,000. They never served a single day in jail. Because he said, you don't put these kind of people in jail, meaning like white middle class people with jobs. And it's just devastating to our, our community. And it made me really think like, well, what are the type of people that you put in jail? Who do you know? And I, I really honestly believe that if the media had done a better job of, of covering not just this case, but the Asian American community in general, I don't think that he would have given such a light sentence. I think he would have seen us as people, as being a part of the community, as being worthy of equal justice. And so that's when I literally started lugging the typewriter from the back kitchen. I always joked, you know what typewriters are, right? Yeah. Big thing in the old days. I would lug one into the dining room and just start typing away these letters to the editor, trying to get them to cover the case or just, you know, other issues too. And so, yeah, it was very pivotal to me. It fired you up as an activist of like, I I need to fight against this injustices. Um, And you would write these letters to the editor. Obviously, you send them to the editor. So you probably don't have any copies of them, right? Do any of them exist? No. One of Uh, them you wrote about Madonna. You thought Madonna was uh, bad for the world. Um, But uh, you've changed your tune. Well, first of all, uh, okay, so I think your <laughs> listeners need to know that back then I was considered the Asian Alex P. Keaton. You're a Republican the- and really into a- it. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, I was class president, yeah. president of the National Honor Society. I co-founded the Young Republican Club, Students Against Smoking. Margaret Thatcher was my my uh, imaginary girlfriend. I mean, you she know, was your I Farrah was- Fawcett. Yeah. She was Farrah Fawcett. Yeah. Instead of Farrah Fawcett, I had a Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> but I think that was part of it, you know, because the stereotype against Asians is that, oh, we're not very loyal to America. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to be the most loyal, patriotic American that you ever see. You will never, ever question, right. you know, where my loyalties were. And so I, I did overkill. Much the way, you know, sometimes gay people do that. Like, you know, you have you pretend when you're in right. the closet, you pretend really straight because you don't want anybody questioning it. Right. I did too, along this other way. Yeah, you write about policing your body language, which I did as well. Like, you don't sit this way, you sit this way. You don't carry your books this way. You don't carry your books that way. And when I meet younger generation of gay people, I notice that they did less of that. I, I could I, I could just tell by the way they carry themselves, oh, you didn't have that thing where you worried about how you carried your books. And that's, it's just interesting to notice. It is. Yeah. But I also think back, you know, for a lot of the young people these days, they, they've grown up with this term it gets better. Right. I don't know if you felt that way when you were growing up, but I was trying to think back in hindsight, like what were the things that gave me hope back then where I think thought that, Oh, well, things will get better. And I don't think I thought there was anything. I think really that AIDS really, um, seemed like it. Yeah. That was 
for all of us. You write and, about thinking you were going to die young between the murdering and the, the AIDS and stuff like that. It, it really felt like you didn't have a big life ahead of you. Yeah, I always thought that I'd be, I, I always just hoped that if I could get to the age of 30, I felt like that would be victory for me. Everything else after that would be icing on the cake. I just, and you know, this isn't in the book because the book ends when I'm 22, but you know, all throughout my, my 20s, after I moved to New York, it was just like this big, hold my breath and, you know, one more day closer to 30, one more day closer to wow. 30. Wow. What was it like when you finally turned 30? What was the day like? I exhaled. I was you exhaled. Like, I exhaled. I was like, okay, I did it. I, I achieved a life goal. I've, I've lived more than I thought. Right. And everything, I, I, everything that will come to me in life afterwards is, is on top of what I could reasonably expect as a gay person yeah. in the 80s. I don't know. Did you feel that way at all? No, because for me, with the it's get, I I I acknowledged myself that I was gay to myself more later, a little bit later in college. Like I had crushes on girls. I hadn't put it together. I was a little clueless, but I felt like the the gay part of me was tied to the creative part of me. They felt like they were connected, and Mm. I loved the creative part of me. I felt like that was my reason. So mm. I leaned into that part. I did shows and all this stuff. And like, I didn't, you know, and I wasn't, my hormones weren't raging to the extent that other people's were. I had crushes or whatever, but it wasn't, um, I don't think it was, I, I think I know people that sound like they were more internally about to combust than I was. Mm. Um, and I felt like it was, I felt like it was connected, connected to the part of myself that I liked the most. So mm. I was able to sort of lean into that part, I think, for, in my head. Um, you had outlet. To express yourself. Yes, for sure. The, the, the theater and dancing and all of those things, um, you know, and, and that I think that, that saved me. Um, there was one point, I, I listened to the audiobook of your of your thing, and you do a great job on it. There's one point where I cried in the car driving to Palm Springs. Um, and it has to do with your mother and Reagan. And mm. she was not on board with the way he was being about AIDS. Right, she was bothered by it. Mm. Right? Do you do you, you remember what I'm talking about? And I think I wrote down yeah. the line. Um, I wanted him to help. Yeah, because um, it, so the the story is, you know, there was a report on news about AIDS, and I was really scared of how my mom was going to react. So I just sat there frozen, and then I started talking to my mom because I also wanted to test her to see well how does she feel about AIDS or by that proxy gay people and. Um, she knew that I was a big Reagan fan, right? Right. And, um, and so I asked her, I said, well, what do you want him to do? What do you want him to do about it? He's busy. He's fighting the Russians. You know what I mean? That was like, you know, give him a break. And then my mom just said, he just said something to the fact of, you know, I want him to help. Yeah, Before it's that letter, simple. It's help, you know, and it was just like eye-opening to my mom. And, you know, when you think about that time period, um, you don't think of a, a, a Chinese immigrant woman working in a Chinese restaurant in Detroit as having a progressive position on these things, but it changed so many people's um, minds about gay people, that disease, Yeah, uh, you know? And so, yeah. And it, and it really made me really appreciate my mom even more, whether or not she knew that I was gay. I don't, she didn't suspect it back then, but she knew that there were other people that needed help too. Right. And, and she wanted Reagan to help them. She was tough on you guys in terms of discipline and studying and all that, but she seemed um, mm-hmm. non-judgmental in terms of other things, sex workers that would come and eat there. 
like she was warm to them and like like she didn't seem judgmental around the outside world um and i think that probably sent a message to you that was pretty powerful yeah no because i was constantly testing her seeing how she would feel about you know these people who had these different lives and stuff like that and my mom was surprisingly very very woke in some ways even though she was very conservative in some ways but her politics and her understanding of the world was uh, very um, progressive. And um, some of this stuff doesn't end up in the book, but I'll, I can share an anecdote is that, you know, so she was um, 17 when she got married to my dad. She came to Detroit, a city where she, she didn't know anything about Detroit, except that it made great cars and better music. Right. And better music. And, but, you know, when she was in Hong Kong, getting ready to come over here, some people said some really not nice, not nice things about black people back in Hong Kong. Right. Saying, oh, be careful, right? And, um, you know, so when she came in, she could have had this bias, but she said that soon after she arrived, one of the, within, I think, like the first month that she was there, she was um, making a delivery run with my grandfather. And the restaurant was in a black neighborhood. And so they were driving the food around, and the car uh, had a flat tire. And neither my mom or my grandfather knew how to fix the flat tire, but a young person, you know, who's black, uh, crossed the street. And, and help them fix the tire. And afterwards, my grandfather, um, you know, tried to pay him a few bucks, but the but the kid didn't want to take it. He just said, no, I just wanted to help you out. And that totally changed my mom's, you know, opinion about these things. Um, and so I think, I think she's the type of person that allows herself to grow um, from these life experiences um, and not to necessarily believe the, the stereotypes about people that, you know, um, people try to say. Yeah, and that comes through in the book, and it sort of evolves in a beautiful way. Uh, but the Reagan moment, I don't know why, it just got me. Like it wasn't – because she was saying something very simple. He could have helped. He could have helped. He didn't. Yeah, that's what you're asking for. Yeah. It, that's what it was. It's just very simple. She winnowed it down. Right? Yeah. Is it hard to help somebody like who's dying literally? Yeah. yeah. As a you know teenage Republican, what has it been like the last 10 years to to watch – the way the parties evolved or do you, or has it been the same as any, anyone? It's probably the same thing I think, but it, do you, it, is there something because you have a, a connection way back in that time that, that it, makes it you think make a certain me, thing? It does make me sad, but I also think that a lot of the things that are happening within the party now are some of the reasons why I left the party. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, keep in mind, Reagan is the one who coined the phrase, make America great again. Yeah. He, one that first started appealing to, the white working class voters of Michigan, which is oftentimes the big base of Trump. Right. I think Trump has really just taken the Reagan playbook and just put it on steroids, right? He's just, you know, and he's added a mix of racism in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or at least more overt racism. Um, you know, so it does make me sad because, uh, and that's partly why I wrote the book, because I, 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 it's really sad that our country is sort of like in these little silos where we don't talk to each other. And I wanted to take this opportunity of, having grown up in a Chinese restaurant where we did serve everybody, no matter what political party or, you know, background you had. And I wanted to sort of use that as an opportunity to start having these conversations about these really important things going on in our country. Um, you know, and so the way I pitched it to my agent was like, you know, it was uh, come for the egg rolls, but stay for the talk on racism. Yeah. You know, so like, you know, cause food has that beautiful thing that can bring us together. And that's what I wanted to take advantage of it. Um, but you know, they weren't at, just welcome there. Uh, they weren't just like tolerated. They, they, you're, everyone felt 
Like there was this loving, come, come. Like it really, it wasn't a passive thing. It was an aggressively inclusive place. It felt like, especially your father and the way he hosted and talked to everyone and the way he taught you guys to be the same way. It's, it's very beautiful in that way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel very lucky in that sense. My dad really taught. And I say this now is that even though I don't work in a Chinese restaurant anymore, I still feel like I'm a Chinese waiter. I live my life as a Chinese waiter, meaning that I'm always going around asking people, hey, how can I help you? Can I get you anything? Can I make your life better? And, you know, it's it's a very giving attitude, um, you know, that I, he's taught me. And I feel like that's served me well, too, is just be a kind, generous person. And this gets to that point of you when you started this whole interview of, like, how I'm able to go to literally uh, almost 200 reading venues, um, you know, in the first year of my book coming out. It's because I've tried to be nice to people throughout my life. And yeah. some of that's just coming back, like, People are just being nice back to me. I started doing this thing last year. Let's share some uh, a- aspects with what you're talking about. Is I just decided that I was going to believe that everybody I meet is awesome. I just decided <laughs> that. Like if I see them on the street or if even somebody that comes up to you and asks for money or whatever, I decided they're awesome going mm-hmm. in and then yeah. behave accordingly and either help them if I can or comment on their – like if I see somebody and I like their shirt – and you're like, Dennis, you should say you like the shirt. I'm like, no, they'll think you're weird. No, say it. Say you like it. And I kind of like mm, force myself. And I do the thing because they're awesome. And I cannot think of one instance where it didn't work, didn't uh, make a great interaction. I can't think of one time when it backfired where they were like, why are you talking to me? Like not one. And it's, they're little moments, but they kind of build up your day. So maybe I'll, I'll kind of think of it as uh, – kind of a Chinese waiter attitude of like, um, what can, you know, how can I help? What can I do? Uh, it's very sweet is my point. You were the middle of six kids, like third or fourth, somewhere in there. And did your family have a vote on who was the favorite at one point? Wasn't there rankings that you guys voted on yourself? How does that meeting happen? Hey, we're all going to get together and decide our rankings. Well, it was always clear who number one was. <laughs> There'll be some movement between two and three. So number right. one was always the firstborn? No, the secondborn. Oh, Chris. the secondborn. Chris was number one. Yeah. Number one, you know, um, often competed with me. Yeah. Because he oftentimes fought with my parents because he had a lot of challenges, you know, um, being the oldest son. Right. Like that. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, but there was a, literally yeah. a meeting where you guys voted. A regular meeting. Oh, it, was, it wasn't a one-time thing. So your ranking could shift. It was like the Nielsen ratings. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I was number four, but look, I'm number two now. Wow. Like, what happened? Oh, you got your report card. Oh, you moved up. <laughs> wow. So you guys would take, was it, were there things you would fill out? Were there physical paper votes or was it just more of a committee meeting? And then just, yeah. And that's so funny to me. That's so interesting to me. Um, <laughs> you tried really hard not to be gay. You would take cold showers. You had like rituals and things like that. Oh man, that, that, that. I found that very poignant. Like I had some of that, but I don't think to the degree, to the degree, like I will not be gay. I will not be gay. I will not be gay. I think a lot of people though can relate to that. So. I think um, so. Yeah. You sound like you had a really balanced, uh, uh, confident, um, you know, assessment of yourself. Uh, uh, in some uh, ways and a little bit naive, I think. And a little bit like I was grew up in a small town. Like I was a little, I was a little naive. I hit puberty late. Like I think I was a little, I didn't have a lot of big adult things coming into the picture. 
Naivete is okay sometimes, right? Yeah, I think it was okay. I, I don't hate it. But you know what struck me as I was reading your book? I was reading this. I was reading it and I was thinking, this kid believes in himself. You believed in yourself. That's what, that's what came through on every page. Like you may have had a setback here, but you're like, nope, I'm going to get there. I'm going to do good in that class or whatever it was. And that was really – because I think a lot of people struggle with that in life, even as adults. They have periods yeah. where they do. But I really – that was something that jumped out at me. Do you think that's a, a fair read? Yeah, I, I think it is. But I've never tried to analyze why I felt that way. But you, you did. Know? Yeah, I always felt good about myself. Because maybe it, maybe I think back to my mom, you know, and there's a line in there where I say, like, my mom never called any of us gifted and talented, right? In fact, she said we're the opposite. We're no better than anybody else. But what would dif- what would differentiate us was how much effort we put in, how hard we do Because um, that's a different way of Asian thinking sometimes, right? Is that we think we can do whatever we want as long as we put in the work and the focus on it. It's not necessarily like, oh... You're so special. You're, yeah. You're so special. You're, you have this inherent gift or whatever. Everybody has all these gifts. It's a question of which ones you're going to, um, you know, try to hone and, and improve and stuff like that. And so that is why the philosophy is so much is about work hard, work hard, work hard, right? Because you can do it. You know, the fact that you didn't get an A isn't because you're not, inca- you're, you're not, you know, you're incapable of it. It's just because you just didn't work hard enough. And so I always felt like if I have a good work ethic, which I did, then I could, then I could do anything. Yeah. Right? And so that, that's where I got the confidence was because my mom always said, you can do whatever you want, but you have to do it. Right. And then you, you had that it. coupled with your dad's outgoingness and willingness, ability to talk to people and like not being shy and like confidence. And I think those two things mm-hmm. combined uh, in a really interesting way. Um, mm-hmm. I live in Los Angeles like you do. After reading your book, I wanted to go eat, eat Chinese food so bad, but I didn't want to like I didn't want to like just go anywhere. So yeah. any if you have a recommendation of a place in LA that's kind of Chung's esque, that when you think of it, you think that's kind of like the, what I remember and what I should get there. Um, if this is putting you on the spot, uh, you can think about it, or we can skip it. Well, I'm gonna obviously say there's nothing like Chung's. Of course. So I. I don't know how you can even make that comparison. <laughs> how, how very dare you? Dare but there you is, but there are dishes like uh, the right. almond. There was an almond. What was the number one seller? The almond boneless. The almond boneless chicken, which is a Detroit dish, which you yeah. can't find in too many places out there. And I actually produced an episode for America's Test Kitchen, yeah. the cooking show, um, because they want to find out the origins of that that dish. Because I, my grandmother said that we invented it, right? Um, and it's that you find in every Chinese restaurant in Detroit. Um, I have to say that I do have a slight bias in terms of my sense of Chinese uh, food because the restaurant that we uh, owned was what some people would call Chinese American. Right. Like it was like young, chop suey, you know, things, dishes that were created here in America more so. Right. Um, so those are the uh, rest- types of restaurants that I like to elevate. But, you know, I also like traditional Hong Kong burger. I mean, Chinese food is just so. Um, you know, diverse, it's really hard to like pinpoint and say, well, what's your favorite Chinese restaurant? It yeah. really depends. You know, are you in a hot and spicy mood for something sure. Szechuan? You want something just, you know, comfort food, like Cantonese food? You know yeah. what I mean? It's all really different. Do you have um, a favorite place in your neighborhood? Uh, well, we live uh, in the arts district, so we can actually walk to Chinatown. Nice. So um, the, uh, um, the, you know, so much, so COVID has, has forced a lot of these places to close down, but, you know, um, 
I don't know. There's there's a handful of them that we do go to. We go to Mama Lou's, which is an old San Gabriel Valley place that's now there. Um, you it's know. still there? Is it not there? Uh, it's there now. It's okay. new. Okay. Um, I think All my right. husband has a Empress. What? Oh, ABC. There's a place called ABC where we just pick up cheap Chinese takeout. Yeah. It's really delicious, but it's really inexpensive. I you love it. I mean? You're re- you're yeah. speaking my language. This is downtown. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, and the place to go for dim sum is Golden Dragon. Okay, I love these recommendations because I was like, I'm, I after reading the book, I was like, I'm all about it. Um, but Golden Dragon is old school, which is good too. Yeah, when I was a kid, there was a period of time where my parents owned a restaurant called the Pancake House, and I worked yeah. there sometimes as a cashier, but I didn't really work there that hard. I was, but <laughs> I would go there on my lunch break from school because it was very close, yeah. and. For a kid to be able to get a burger and fries at a restaurant every day for school and then sign the check. It was I was a brat. But <laughs> I I do remember like having slumber parties and my friends would stay the night and then in the morning we would go get pancakes. And it would it was just like, did you ever have friends come into the restaurant? Was that ever part of because it helped me make friends. It made me popular in a way because they knew there were if they stayed the night there would be pancakes in the morning. No, that's a great strategy. Um but <laughs> no, uh, we did not because Detroit's a very divided city. We had this one road called Eight Mile Road. Yeah. If you ever saw Eight uh, yeah. M's film. But it's, it really was like, you know, the, the line between North Korea and South Korea. You just wow. do not cross it. Wow. You know. Um, but we were one of those families that crossed it. Because you lived on one side and you worked on the other. Exactly. So we were one of those families that, again, um, and I talk about that. You know, it's like because I'm Asian in a very black and white city, because I'm closeted in a, in a very straight world, because my family's Buddhist in a very Judeo-Christian, you know, world, um, oftentimes, you know, I had to be that outsider and sort of see how things were. And so like being going back and forth between both sides actually gave me a really great perspective on these things, you know, um, of the city. You got to go to Boy State, which I remember people talking about, and it was like this uh, this really esteemed thing. And it was where they would take like the best students and then you would go and pretend to be a government. What was it like? Yeah, no, it was a, a really, well, it was also an eye-opening experience um, for a lot of different re- reasons. And it's in the book. But um, yeah, so Boy State is like they take the top two um, uh, boys from each uh, school in the state. And you go to the state capitol and you spend a whole week, almost like a government. They have one for Girl State too. Yeah. There was a documentary that was recently made about it. But um, it was like the creme de la creme of people interested in pursuing politics. And the learning lesson for me in that, though, was that I was a conservative in the suburbs of Detroit. But when I got there, the people outside of that area, like in western Michigan and the rural parts, they were conservative. And it really opened my eyes of this whole notion of like, well, maybe I'm not as conservative as I thought I was, right? Right. You know, compared to them, you, you sort of called into question some things. They were saying these things that really shocked me. Like, um, and I talk about this in the book of how I, uh, my politics did change over time um, in the book. And there were three A policies that sort of changed it. The first was um, apartheid. Yeah. Like, Reagan supported uh, Bolta. I did not understand how that was possible. Everybody knew it was a really racist policy. Um, the second one was um, uh, AIDS. Uh, at that point, the Republicans were like pushing compassionate conservatism, which, you know, as a Buddhist, that makes total sense to me, you know, but then obviously you'd go to these Republican club meetings and no, there was no compassion going on at all. They were really quite, yeah, not nice. Um, and then uh, the third, by the time I got to college, was abortion because 
as a closeted gay guy who had no plans to ever sleep with a woman. Um, you know, I didn't care about that issue. I was never going to get a girl pregnant. So it was easy for me to be anti-choice, right? To be pro-life. And that's what I was. And it was only when I met these two women uh, in college who said, look, it's just about controlling our own bodies, deciding what we want to do. And when I, when that clicked in my head, like, oh, that's exactly what I want to do as a, as a gay guy is control my own body. That's when I sort of shifted over. Um, but going back to Boys State, you know, it, that's where those guys were talking about, like, uh, you know, apartheid and also AIDS. And I just like, oh, that's not. This, know, this is not where I'm coming from. Going. Yeah. That's not where I'm with these things. Uh, speaking so. of national institutions, were you on Wheel of Fortune? I was on Wheel of Fortune. How did that happen? Uh, as a teenager or yeah. as an adult? No, as a teenager. They had this thing called Teen Week. Okay. So what happened was that um, in the old, I don't know if they still do this now, but they would travel around the countryside, right, and have these little uh, mock uh, sessions where you could come and apply. Right. And so, uh, my brother, who was old enough, um, he was like two years older than me, so he wanted to go apply for the show. And so I followed him along. I tagged along. And when we got there, they said, oh, you know, we actually have this thing called Teen Week. So if you're underage, you can actually apply for it. And so I I loved word puzzles back then. Yeah. Even back then, like, I, did, I had nothing to do with the Russian. I just sit there and, and do the crossword puzzle and do the word search. So I was really good at word games. And so um, I remember this very specifically. They had a test where you had 15 puzzles, right? Where sort of like hangman, right? Where they'd fill in and give you a couple of uh, letters and you'd have to figure out what they were. So yeah. out of those 15, I did the best out of all several hundred people in that room. I only missed one. Crush. Yeah, I don't think, well, I mean, I tied with a couple of people, but I don't right. think anybody got all 15. And I remember the exact one that I, I screwed up to. It, it was, uh, the actual answer was the love boat. And I had guessed the lifeboat instead. Oh, oh, that's a killer. Uh, also, speaking of word games, you mentioned one of your brothers was in a spelling bee and misspelled restaurant. Yeah. That's a heartbreaker. I feel like that. You never live that down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was almost at the finals, too. Yeah. yeah it was really bad. But, but did you go to L.A. to film Wheel of Fortune? We did. Wow. But you had to pay for it yourself because um, – you can get on the show, but they don't pay for you to fly out there. So it's on your own dime. And so for me, that was a lot of pressure because yeah. we didn't have a lot of money. It's you know, a gamble, but you did it. Gamble. We did it. And we stayed with my uncle, so we didn't have to do that. So it was just like, you know, the flight um, for me and my mom out. And so we did. And I got on the show. I won I won all the, the pre-rounds before the bonus round. Um, and then when we get to the bonus round, I made the boneheaded decision of choosing – for my vowel, the letter A and not E. Because right. my mom always said, you go for the letter A. <laughs> you go for the A. You know what I mean? That was, yeah. That was so you didn't win the big money. But you probably made enough to cover the trip. I did. Yes. and I, and, But also to show you what a big nerd I am, <laughs> um, you had to spend the money, right? To like oh, you had stuff. to buy the ceramic Dalmatian or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah, uh, back then. And uh the thing I got most excited about buying was the encyclopedia. <laughs> yes, uh, you light up. I, I got my own. I didn't have to share with my siblings. I had my own set of encyclopedias, yeah. which is yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned your mother uh, saying to pick A, and you talk about different su superstitions she has throughout the book. Oh, yeah. She's so Do you have any now yourself that stay with you? Not all the time. Like all what? The time. Probably the most common one is um, when we go out to eat Chinese food, I always eat noodles. 
because noodles are a symbol of long life. Right. Yeah. And so I, I always, and maybe it's because my dad passed away at a young age. I, I eat lots of noodles um, all the time. Yeah. Um, that's probably the one that I think about the most. Um, but even just little things like numbers, like if I have to force myself not to be so superstitious, but like, you know, if I go to a hotel and if they put me on the fourth floor, I always ask them not to, because in Chinese, um, four is a bad luck number, you know, uh, because it sounds like the word death. So there are all kinds of things that I'm just literally like, yeah, probably shouldn't do this, but I do anyway. Yeah. But it also probably makes you feel connected to your story and to your, you know what I mean? Like that when my mother always said that it's a way of sort of, uh, you know, honoring, honoring that history It's kind of beautiful in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the interactions been like on, on tour? Is there anything that surprised you about people's reactions or things that they're getting from it or comments they're making that maybe wasn't what you're expecting? It's been really wonderful. People have been so sweet. Um, I'll share a couple of my favorite yeah. moments or standout was um, the one I often talk about is um, I was doing an event in Cambridge, Massachusetts at Porter Square Books, a packed house. Um, at the end, this woman gets up and she's about 50 years old or so. And she's like, has anybody here ever eaten at Chung's? And nobody else had, right? Because we're in Massachusetts. But then she said, I grew up in Detroit and that was my family's favorite restaurant. And we used to go there all the time. And then she said, um, her mom has dementia now. But then when she told her mom that she was going to this book reading from one of the kids from Chung's, her mom started recounting all of their favorite dishes in oh. detail. And she said for the first time, she said that she had her, in a long time, she felt like she had her mom back. And it's just wonderful to think like, you know, when, I don't know if you felt this because your family owned a restaurant, but the, the relationship you have with these people and the impact that you have, and you think back and it's like, oh my God. You guys came to our restaurant every week. It was that important to you as part of your life, you know, and the fact that you were able to help these people or to play this pivotal role in their childhood and their understanding of the world is just really, it's, uh, I don't know, it's still moving to me to, to think that, you, you know. You gave them a safe place where something wonderful would happen. Like, it's yeah. what you provided, the atmosphere and the food and the love and everything that went into it. Oh, that's really beautiful. No. Um, was there another, you said there might be another story. This, this, this one is not an individual, but this has happened to me about four or five times now. It was like at the end of the book signing, there will all be this young Asian kid who will linger, right? They're in their teens. They'll linger to the end to be the last one. Cause it means they want more FaceTime with you. And so they thank me for writing the book and, and they talk about how they also are Chinese restaurant kids or more specifically Asian restaurant kids because it's, it's a mix of Asians. Um, but they'll say like, uh, they'll talk about the difficulties they're having, the fights they're having with their parents, you know, the, 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 the sense of not having a freedom to choose what they want to do in life. And then they start to break down and cry, mm. you know, and, um, it's tough because I know that, you know, when you run a family business, it isn't all happy-go-lucky. I was lucky because my family already had an established restaurant. It was founded by my great-grandfather in 1940. I didn't have to go through the hardships. My parents paid me. But at the same time, I try to be compassionate to these kids and, and tell them that, like, it will get better, right? Like, you know, um, you, you're fighting with your parents now, but at some point you will see there's something. But I – but. The thing that I leave them most with is like, I tell them, be more compassionate towards your parents. Your parents could be be fighting the same battles that you're fighting too. 
like you think that you maybe you're battling like this idea of like you know your cultural thing of like how american to be whatever your parents are also probably fighting that maybe you're fighting with you know money issues your parents are fighting with you know so i just say like you know um cut your parents a break and i know it's not necessarily something you want to hear as a teenager because at that age your parents really are you know the worst but um (laughs) maybe just by planting that seed in their head that at some point your relationship with your parents is going to change i'm not saying you have to do that now right you don't have to embrace that now but just know at the back of your head somewhere in the future of your life you and your parents will have a different relationship you know and and maybe that makes it okay it tethers them a little bit you know um because it gives them a sense that life is an evolution yeah things will yeah it's 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 beautiful and that's really kind of what carries through the book that the the parents are such a they they have such a powerful impact and that ending the ending with them is is beautiful and the things that are said understated simple beautiful cried um what did your parents end up thinking about you being gay ultimately uh, that's in book two. That's in book two. <laughs> All right. First, I like it. It's book two. Oh, they were great. They were, they were really awesome. They, right. uh, it was a funny scene in the big boys. I don't know if you had big boys in Arizona. Bob's but, big uh, boy? Like yes. a restaurant? Yeah. Yes. We had big boys. Right. And I was living in New York at the time and I came home and um, they'd never said anything about, you know, pairing me off or anything before. And, you know, they'd always said things like, we support you in your life. No matter what you want to do, you know, we'll be behind you. And I always thought that meant like that was coming out, right? Like they'd be okay with it. Nope. Turned out they were just talking about my career. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my mom for the first time actually said like, oh, so when are you getting married? And I just casually said to her like, oh, I'm not getting married. I'm gay. In a you Bob's know? big boy. The Bob's big boy. Yeah. And the whole table exploded. My mom ran to the salad bar, started crying. My dad went out to the uh, parking lot to get a newspaper. My siblings who already knew were yelling at me saying, you know, you did this on purpose because you're just about to get on the airplane and you're leaving you, us with this You're dropping giant. this bomb and then you're out. Yeah. Uh, so it was, a, it was a bit of a funny scene. But uh, because my parents had gay friends, customers in our restaurant, right. they went to this couple, this um, Dr. John, John and his husband, Rob, doctor, lawyer type situation, right. super wealthy, whatever. Uh, they sat down with, my, with them and uh, Dr. Uh, John and Rob filled my parents with all the worst stereotypes about gay people. Oh, they're going to have a fabulous apartment. They're going to travel. <laughs> right. You know, you don't have to worry. And so after that, they, they, they couldn't have time to like go to PFLAG because they were working, but they did call them and they had PFLAG send them books. Nice. They started, which is really nice. Like within a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty beautiful. And I love that they, they were like going to the super couple, this like power couple. <laughs> For, for, that makes your future look pretty bright, though, actually. Um, tell people how they can find your book or find out where you're touring at. Uh, well, you can always go to my website. It's called curtisfromdetroit.com, and that's my tour schedule. I try to, um, you know, at least have a couple months in advance. Um, I don't want to overload people with too much, so I just put out the couple months. But in terms of where the book is sold, I mean, it's published by Little Brown, um, so it's everywhere. I actually uh, posted up on... Um, uh, Instagram, uh, the, the time I found it in the airport. Oh, right? amazing. So, That's when you know you're uh, breaking through another level. Ka-ching you know is I, my thought. I, I had this dream myself. I didn't know other writers had this too because as soon as I posted it up, everybody's like, oh, my God, 
you don't know how big that is. Or I had that exact same dream. Yeah. Because it really does mean that you have your, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I hear ka-ching, ka-ching a little bit in my head. Um, although my books were so long ago, I don't know about the economics of the business anymore, but congrats to be in an airport is a big deal. And uh, yeah, so, but you can order from Amazon, from Barnes and Noble, independent bookstores. Uh, you really can find it everywhere. They really have done a really great job, um, of getting it out there. Um, like I had a friend who was like, Oh, we were just in Minnesota doing a pub, pub run, I, I know, a book crawl, like, cause they had a new book that just came out and they said they saw my book in every bookstore in Minnesota. You know what I mean? Fantastic. Do you do that thing where I go in and sign stock wherever I'm at? I'll like sign. I'll, I don't care. I'll just go in the bookstore and start signing my books. Because um, somebody told me they'd give a more prominent positioning there. This was years ago. But yeah, I was I, kind of so like relentless that way. I should do that, but I don't. Um, partly because I, I, um, cause I'm traveling around so much. Yeah. Uh, I don't have time to really relax. I'm really in and out of a city. Yeah. But and if I am at the hotel... I also plan like dinners with a lot of people, but I also, um, I, I like to write and yeah. using the writing time somewhere. And so for me, that's the trade-off is that I'm not going to go to a bookstore and get signed books. I'm <laughs> going to stick and, and get some pages done. Yeah. I like it. Um, you discover writing in the book and you write about that, how that part of your personality comes out. Um, this is a question I often ask as the last question to people, but I'm curious for you because you've been doing it a long time. Why do you write? I just, I just enjoy it, I guess. I mean, it's, it's fun. I love language. I mean, my poetry, uh, my background in writing is actually poetry. Um, so when I went off to college, I, I only went to college because my mom made me go to college. I didn't want to go to college. Uh, but, uh, and I was working full time and going to school at night. Um, and interestingly, a lot of night classes are writing classes. I don't know why that is. And so I rationalized like, okay, if I studied writing haikus, I could graduate in under 500 words. <laughs> that was my whole day plan. Right. Um, but I just fell in love with language, you know, just listening, images, creating characters. Um, it's just fun. That's all I can say. And the one thing that people, um, some writers will ask me is, uh, what do you do with writer's block? And I would say I've never had writer's block ever. I don't know. Do you have, if you have writer's block, but I don't really, I don't really call it that. I don't, I don't think I've never struggled with that because I've got other, I'm doing other things. Um, but I don't, I'm not as disciplined about writing. Like I'm, I, when I have to make a living doing other things, I'll go a long time without being that kind of a creative writer. Um, so yeah, I, I don't often have that thing that you see in movies where somebody's like, I can't think of the next thing. And, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't have that. I but I will go through long stretches of not writing too. Yeah, like um, for the most part of, of 2023, because I was so focused on the marketing, I didn't really get a chance to write fun stuff. I did. I did get paid to write like uh, journalism pieces. Right. Right. Um, but those those are not as fun as when you get to be creative and you know working on a book or a screenplay or something like that. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I have one more question that I forgot. I'm going to ask it. What was it like to do events in Detroit? Very emotional um, going back there. The city of Detroit has really embraced it, um, not just like uh, the typical bookstores and universities and libraries, but also places like Ford Motor Company and GM. They're all organizing you know, events. But the, the Detroit Historical Museum organized an exhibit around you know, the launch of my book, right? It's just 
Um, the whole city, like I said, it was an iconic restaurant. And so um, at the Detroit Historical Museum, there was like a sold out event, right? Like they had like 120 people. I think that was the cap. But then at the end of it, I said, hey, how many people here went to Chung's restaurant? And about a third of the people in the audience raised their hand. And then we took a giant picture at the end, like a family photo. And I, I took that picture to my mom in California. My mom doesn't live in Detroit anymore. And I took it to my mom and I showed it to her. And she's like, oh, I remember this. If I remember these. Photos. And so that was really sweet. Yeah. What a beautiful way to honor that all that history. And for okay. the reader, it's just a beautiful window into a, a wonderful place and a, and a wonderful family. And um, I'm so glad that I read it, and I'm so glad that we had this conversation. So thank you for doing the podcast. When you're back from your tour, let's go somewhere in L.A. and eat good stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit swamped until May-ish. Or so. Sure. I'll look forward to it. It's so fun talking to you. Thank you. Thanks again to Curtis Chin. Check out his book, Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. It's terrific. And the audio is excellent as well. That's how I listen to it. And he does a great job narrating his own story. All right. So this happened. All right. So one of the things I put on my dream board, I like to put some easy stuff on there to tick off early um, in the in the year. And so I put Mean Girls the Musical movie because <laughs> it was opening and I wanted to see it. Uh, I'm a fan of Mean Girls, Tina Fey, what all. And... Uh, I also put on there Nicole Kidman's twinkly-eyed walk down the hallway in the AMC commercial for two reasons. One, I like her attitude. I feel like that's a good way to approach the year. Like, something exciting is coming. I have a little twinkle in my eye. Like, like I think that's an open-hearted way to walk into the world. Also, I found out that the theater where she shot that at is not far from where I live. It's Porter Ranch AMC, which is about... A half hour from where I am in North Hollywood. So I decided I'm going to kill two dreams with one stone early in the year. Uh, so I got a group of friends and we went to the AMC Porter Ranch to see Mean Girls. Um, and, and let me just tell you, it was so excited to be watching that commercial in the place where it was filmed. And we were kind of tittering, but we were kind of alone in the tittering because it's probably a pretty straight uh, neighborhood crowd. But we were into it. And then after the movie was over... Uh, we, we went to the usher and we were like, hey, can you tell us the theater where... And we couldn't even get the question out of our mouth. He's like, Theater 8. So we wanted to know the exact screen. So we all make our way down to Theater 8. Luckily, a movie hasn't started yet. There's one about to start in like 20 minutes. I think Maria Menounos is up there doing Zuby movie, whatever. Shtick. So we're able to kind of roam freely through the Nicole's sacred space. And... <laughs> We take some pictures, and my friends and I, we're doing, like, different, like, walks into the thing. It's ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. And I do the walk down the hall, which is my, that was my goal. I needed to walk down the hall with the numbers behind me and get that look in my eye. And I I did that. I was able to do that. I was able to get it in the can, as they say in the biz. And can I just tell you, when I look back at that video, I kind of feel like I nailed it. I feel like I captured the essence of what Nicole is feeling in that moment. We also learned that the cinema had not yet opened to the public at all when Nicole shot the commercial. It was brand new. So her ass was the first to sit in those seats, and that's, which is how it should be, wherever she goes. So that's another fun fact. But I will definitely go back because it was a fun kind of place to be there. It was a fun field trip. My friend Matt Zarley does this um, 
when he walks toward the seats video. I think I also posted that on Instagram. He's so selling the wondrousness of it. Every time I watch that video, I laugh. My other friends are doing pictures. It's ridiculous. But it was fun. It was like giddy, stupid fun. And uh, two dreams off the list. Meanwhile, that same night, Enzo was in the hospital because he had just had his surgery. But he was doing good. So um, just a moment in time. Um, so there's that. If you think about wanting to go to Porter Ranch AMC, I, I suggest it's worth the drive. I was delighted by it. Before I let you go, I also want to mention that the Mismatch Game is coming up on February 10th at the LA LGBT Center. The theme is Heartbreak Feels Good in a Place Like This. See, I can't let it go. I can't let it go. Uh, Tickets are going fast. The center opened it up for some donor groups. They're trying to turn it into a, a larger event. So it may sell out is the point. So don't lollygag on this one. Go to LALGBTcenter.org and look under the, uh, the events and you'll find it. And it'll be great. Also, the link is on my Instagram for tickets. All right, that's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Shout out to Oscar Rosario for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.